Now it's time for Girl Talk with Julie Buck and Nicole Genovese on the Big 550 KTRS. Welcome to Girl Talk on the Big 550 KTRS. I'm Julie Buck. Nicole Genovese is out today, but Max is here. Hello. And we're going to talk to Allison Shepardek. She is in charge of ElevateEtiquette.com. And this is just a subject that I think is really important to continue on because I feel like over the generations, we've kind of lost being polite and with people getting involved with social media and not really having to interact as much. It's also something that has kind of left the building, being polite, dining etiquette, business, social graces, public speaking, all kinds of things like that. So I thought I would get Allison on the show today and Max was kind enough to reach out to Allison and she's on the phone now. Hi, Allison. How are you? Hello, I'm doing well, and I am so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So tell us about your business, Elevate Etiquette, and how you started it. My business, Elevate Etiquette, is where I teach social, business, dining etiquette, and international protocol. And I began learning about etiquette more than a decade ago when my husband and I were engaged to be married, and I had some wedding etiquette questions that I didn't know the answer to. So I got my first etiquette book thinking that I would just read it to find the answers I was looking for. And I ended up reading it cover to cover and have read many, many books on etiquette and social emotional intelligence since then. Got a certification in etiquette and international protocol and um, began teaching it. And I now teach individual lessons as well as um, lessons to groups, both online and in person. So when I was in about the fifth grade, I remember there was this course and it was called Pretty as a Picture by a local woman by the name of Maria Everding. And it was at Saks in the basement and you would go on Saturdays and you had a workbook and you would fill out all of these different things. And it taught you like what you should wear to certain things, what you should, what fork you should use when you go out to dinner, uh, how to take care of your hair and your nails and all of these things. Well, of course, my mother had me signed up promptly to do that. And then the lady told me I needed private lessons because I guess the big class didn't take. Oh. I know, I know. But, you you know, you think back to that and I think back to, you know, just looking at the word etiquette and I picture women walking around with a with a book on their head, you know, like learning like the, the, the rain in Spain or one of those kind of uh deals. And now it's it. But there's a lot more to it than that, isn't there? There definitely is. And I think two of the biggest misconceptions about etiquette are one that they only apply to expensive or wealthy uh, social groups. And then also that it only applies in formal scenarios, when really etiquette is all about demonstrating kindness and respect, not only to others, but also to yourself. And so there's etiquette and really any facet of your life, it's just different etiquette or social norms apply given the scenario, whether it's an expensive activity or not, or whether it's highly formal or very casual. Kindness and respect are always important. Sure. Let's talk about dining etiquette. Now, you know, I've got three sons, two are in the business world, one is still in college. And I mean, they, mm-hmm. they've got to know this stuff. When they go to a business meeting, they have to know which fork to use and, and which where your soup spoon is if you would order soup. But do you think that other people are now noticing that too? Or do you think that that is all kind of gone by the wayside and we need to kind of work back to getting to be more polite with one another? 
So I definitely think that more and more people are noticing these things, whether they're noticing it in others or noticing it within themselves, that they're having maybe an insecurity that's distracting from the purpose of their meal because they're not sure which utensil to use or how to pronounce something or um, the sequencing of things to expect. And I'm seeing more and more that companies and organizations are investing in etiquette courses and in helping their their employees with those critical soft skills to help them feel more confident in those business meals or other sorts of situations. On your website, elevateetiquette.com, it says social media, social media audit. And I think that's really interesting because I think a lot of young people don't realize that when someone is interviewing you for a job, in a lot of cases, they will go on Mm -hmm. your social media And if it's you rocking out out of your mind, you know, um, drunk or something like that, that might not bode well for you to get the gig. Definitely, definitely. And it it can be a, a delicate thing because we want to demonstrate authenticity and and all of that. And social media is a wonderful way to connect. But we want to be careful about what we're showing um, about our own lives and also being respectful in terms of what we're showing of others' lives too um, through our roles on social media. When it comes to social media audits, I would think that that would be something that you have to kind of go very lightly because now if you get into the early 20-somethings, they don't necessarily know a life without social media and they don't really understand that it could be damaging. Yes, I've, I've definitely found that. And I and reasonable minds can differ on whether it's best to have a private social media account or a public account. Um, and that also depends on your various industry that you're working in. But social media is definitely an important place to be thinking about etiquette as well. Let's talk about thank you notes. I think it's a lost art. I was never great at it as a kid. I'm still terrible at it. I work with a few ladies here at the radio station that are excellent at it. And it does mean a lot when you get an old fashioned handwritten note from somebody that says, thank you for the blah, 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 or I had a blast at the concert with you, or it just goes a little bit that goes a long way. And I'm not on a soapbox because I'm terrible at this. But what are your thoughts on thank you notes and handwritten notes? So I love a thank you note. I love a handwritten note. And I would say, don't be too hard on yourself. And there's no time like the present to start writing them or start writing them more frequently. And if anyone is feeling badly about not writing them enough or not in a routine of it, some of my recommendations are first, just like if you want to be excited what you're or for what you're wearing on any given day, you need to have a wardrobe that you like. You should also have stationery that you like, and you should have stationery for different moments that you're excited to send to people. So maybe you have one that's more conservative and subtle for a sympathy note or a condolence note, something that is maybe more feminine and fun for, you know, other more colorful moments or maybe a special stationery that you use for family oriented notes. So have stationery that you are excited to use. And then secondly, it can be short and sweet. It doesn't need to go on and on. And then third, I'm a big believer in it's better late than never. So yes, a thank you note that's written immediately is terrific, but it's really never too late to express your gratitude. So I wouldn't let that be something that holds you back. I love that. And elevated events is one of the things that you talk about, like when you go to a business dinner or a wedding or something like that, and you'll help people 
with their planning that side of it or with how to attend it? So I do both. Um, I definitely do both. And I I enjoy it all. Um, I really do. Let's say you're going to a wedding. You've never been to a wedding before. How do you know where to send the gift? When do you bring the gift to the wedding? Do you send it and just show up at the event? Yes, that's a great question. So for wedding gifts, it can depend on the wedding, but generally it's best to send the gifts in advance. And if you are invited to multiple events, so let's say invited to a shower and a wedding, then it is recommended to give a gift for both the shower and the wedding. Um, And that's even if you are not able to attend both events, I do recommend sending a gift because getting invited to a wedding is is a compliment in and of itself. It really says a lot about how much you mean to a person because a couple can only invite so many people to their big day. So I do recommend sending at least a little something um, to acknowledge your gratitude, even if you're not able to attend the wedding. And I recommend buying off of the registry if there is a registry yes. or purchasing or purchasing something that you really believe that the couple would really enjoy. Uh, technically, you have up to a year after a wedding ceremony to send a gift. However, I do recommend sending it sooner rather than later um, because it just makes things easier for both the guests of the wedding and the couple as well to so keep things organized that way. Where do you weigh in on hostess gifts? Do you bring one every time you go to someone's home or to a party? So I think it depends on the scenario. So if this is your best friend that you are seeing all the time, you don't need to be coming up with a hostess gift every single time that you're getting together, if you're getting together with great regularity. However, even for a person that or a family that you see very regularly for those special occasions, like let's say they invite you to a holiday party um, or something that's just like a little more fancy or they've gone out of their way to make an event extra special, then I would bring a hostess gift in that scenario. I also would bring a hostess gift if you're going to someone's home that you've never been to before, if, um, again, it's a special event or you don't go there very often. And it doesn't need to be super lavish, but a little something to just show your thoughtfulness. Like a candle or something like that, right? Yes, exactly. Something like that. Um, and then a question I often get is, does a host need to thank someone if they receive a hostess gift? And the answer is usually no, but it does depend because technically a hostess gift is a thank you gift. So we don't need to be thanking each other in perpetuity. Like, thank you for the thank you gift. Thank you right. For and the just thank never you. ends, right? <laughs> yes. So what I recommend with a, if a host receives a gift and let's say, they're not able to open it at the event. Um, I would acknowledge it in some capacity. So maybe you send a text and say, thank you so much for the candle. It was great to see you last night. And, you know, we look forward to seeing you again soon, something like that. And if a host gift is very generous, very special, then in that situation, I would recommend sending a thank you note. But typically, you don't need to. Brings me to another point. Can you send a text in lieu of a thank you note? So I think it really depends on the situation Um, for a hostess gift where you don't really need to send a note, then I think that a text is okay. Um, If it's a, maybe it's a smaller thing, like someone got you a cup of coffee when you got together, you could send them a text and say next time's on me or something like that. 
Um, generally, I like handwritten notes better than thank you notes. The one time I will do um, a text is, and I actually posted about this on Instagram earlier this week, is if I'm ever wanting to send a note to someone that doesn't have a permanent address or is in a season of transition, what I'll sometimes do is I'll write out a note and then I'll take a picture of it and I'll text it to the person saying, I wish I could send this to you. Please accept this text as the next best thing. So that's another way you can do it. If, um, that's fantastic if have an address. advice. We're, we're talking to Allison today from elevateetiquette.com. You can learn more and find out more about what she does. Maybe you want to get to know more about how to proceed with a wedding or something like that. You mentioned that that's how you got into this business in the first place. We've got a wedding coming up in a year in our family. Um, and I'm wondering, what is the, is there still protocol and etiquette on who throws the shower? And everyone yes. that is invited to the shower has to be invited to the wedding, correct? Yes. And it's, it's funny, it might seem so simple, so black and white, the, you know, the mother of the bride shouldn't be hosting, the sister of the bride shouldn't be hosting, and everyone who is invited to the shower should also be invited to the wedding. But it's, it's so easy for that to become tricky, uh, especially as destination weddings become more common or having weddings outside of the area where a bride lives and works is becoming more common. But generally speaking, um, at the very least, you don't want to have the mother of the bride or the sister of the bride as the host on the invitation. And the reason for that is because it traditionally can come across as though the family is asking for gifts because a shower is a party where you are showering the bride with gifts. And so that's that's number one. And then number two on inviting people to a shower most people who receive an invitation to a shower will assume that they are also being invited to the wedding. So then when they don't receive that wedding invitation, they're left wondering if they did something wrong, if their invitation <laughs> was lost or, or what happened. And so that can be challenging. I think there are specific scenarios where it can work. Um, like for example, you might have friends from work that want to put together a shower for their colleague and all of the, the co-workers know that they're not going to the wedding and they just are taking it upon themselves to shower their colleague with good wishes and gifts. That's one thing, but it wouldn't be appropriate for a bride to say, I'm getting married. I unfortunately can't invite any of you to my wedding, but I would like for you to throw a shower for me on my behalf. That wouldn't be uh, such a good look. So personal question, can I throw a mm -hmm. shower for my niece as the aunt? I think so. I think I definitely think so. And I know it's kind of you're still related. It's just in a more attenuated sense. Um, I, I think that's perfectly appropriate. And I even think it's OK uh, for a mom to be involved more in a behind the scenes sort of a way. But I, I wouldn't put the mom's name on the invitation. What about the grandmothers? I think the grandmother is is OK. And reasonable minds can differ on that. Um, I would say an aunt is, is better if we're talking about aunt versus grandmother yes, versus mom. I'm so excited. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, because they're a little bit more removed. Right. Absolutely. Well, okay. So you also mentioned when we first started speaking today, Allison, about international protocol. Tell us what you mean by that. 
So I live in Washington, D.C., which is a very multinational place where there's a lot of people who work in diplomacy and international affairs. And I work with many people in government or interfacing with government on what's the appropriate thing to do in various state engagements. And then I also help people who are traveling primarily for international business, but also for leisure on what to do in various situations so they're not offending anyone or um, and also to just make them feel as comfortable as they can in international scenarios. Like if you were going to a White House dinner or something like that, I mean, do you do people know they don't know automatically, I would think, if they're supposed to wear gloves, if they're supposed to wear a long dress, a short dress. Um, yes. Things along those lines. Exactly. OK, good stuff. And people can find out more about what you do at ElevateEtiquette.com. That's the website for you to leave a lasting impression. And then how does it work? People can hire you or take classes online or what's the best way to to get in touch with you, Allison? Yes, and they can get in touch with me via my website, which is ElevateEtiquette.com. And then I am also on social media at Elevate Etiquette. You can reach out to me through your social media channel of choice as well. And what ages do you start? Do you start with younger kids and go all the way through adults? Yes, I work with all ages. All right. Good to know. I would think that you would get a lot of people from uh, Texas and Alabama and young girls going to college and things like that. Or maybe I'm just old. No, no, oh. you're not old at all. I, I get, you know, people from all over the world, actually. It's been fun to see, um, you know, some people that English is not their first language or they're new to American customs and then also lots of Americans, too. But it's it's a lot of fun to work with people from from anywhere in the world, really. Well, you've been awfully kind and very polite in replying to Max's emails. I know that. And thank you so much. ElevateEtiquette.com. Thanks, Allison. We'll talk again soon. Take care. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. Now back to Girl Talk with Julie and Nicole on KTRS. February is American Heart Month. And so our friend Jen Hinkle is on the phone. She is from the Olive and Oak Hospitality Group. And she also runs the Ollie Hinkle Heart Foundation. Hi, Jen. How are you? Hi, I'm good, Julie. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for joining us today. Uh, let's talk about Heart Health Month and what we're all supposed to be kind of aware of. And, and let's get into that. Yeah. Um, every February is Heart Month. And um, we all hear a lot of awareness around um, how to prevent acquired heart disease. Um, but there's another kind of heart disease that we tried to spread awareness for during February, and that is congenital heart disease and um, some of the challenges that this community faces, um, highlighting it all year long, but especially during heart month. Well, and you come by this in a way of something that nobody ever wants to go through, but you have a have a wonderful angel by the name of Ollie Hinkle, uh, who fought his hardest with his heart and sadly is is no longer with us, but you're doing this all in his honor. Yes. Um, my husband, Mark, and I um, created the Ollie Hinkle Heart Foundation um, almost 11 years ago. And we really, like you said, um, put this foundation together to take our love for Ollie and spread it around. And all of the families who are battling pediatric heart disease, we we're in this unique position of knowing their struggles firsthand. And 
we set out to um, to create programs for these families and to wrap them in love and try to eliminate some of the traumas that this community endures um, around financial burdens and mental health support and improving outcomes for children who are battling um, congenital heart disease. Hey, Jen. Hi, and welcome back to the program. Um, yes. I, I, I can only imagine what your family has gone through and the journey in particular, going from the morning of the loss of a child to running a foundation that has so much support uh, and has made a difference in so many lives. And that has to be such an emotional roller coaster. Yes, it really was. And um, I mean, truly, the the day that we had to go home with the hospital from the hospital without Ollie um, was the hardest. And it was tough to think about having to go to bed that night and wake up the next day and deal with everything. But our daughter Maddie at the time was three and she was the reason that we kept going. And um, when we had Ollie's funeral services, we had asked attendees to bring um, a donation for pediatric heart research in lieu of flowers. And we collected over $13,000 in those two days. And we were just floored by that generosity. And when we handed that check over to um, that research, it really made us feel good. And it really planted the seeds for um, what we do today at the Ollie Hinkle Heart Foundation for Heart Families here in St. Louis and um, across the country. Can you share with people the story of your very well-known restaurant in St. Louis, uh, Olive and Oak, and, and the name of the restaurant and where that comes from? Yes, um, Mark and I, um, Olive and Oak opened just over eight years ago. We just had our eight-year anniversary. And it all started when we met another family who had lost a child from heart disease. And um, Mark and his business partner became fast friends and um, started looking at spaces to open a restaurant. And when it came down to naming it, um, it felt like a natural um, to take our boys and honor them through the restaurant, and that's where um, our Ollie is. His name was Oliver, and his business partner's son was named Oaks. So that's where the name Olive and Oak comes from, and that's why you see all the hearts in the restaurant and the neon hearts and um, the little pins, uh, the red felt hearts. Um, so really celebrating their their legacy and um, trying to bring awareness to this disease that our two families faced and so many others faced too. Absolutely. And this little guy did not have a lot of time on this earth, but I will tell you, he left a lasting impression for sure. Yes. So you come out of the world of a food service uh, in Chicago and then here, Mark, the same, of course, with Annie Guns and lots of other places and now your own places. Um, Compare the work. I mean, obviously, the foundation your heart, no pun intended, your heart is in it a little more. But as far as the day-to-day, is it harder to run a foundation or is it harder to run restaurants? <laughs> um, I think it depends on the day. And if you ask Mark, <laughs> you ask me. But um, it really, um, they both challenge us. But we really just have such a deep passion for the hospitality industry as well as 
this heart community who we serve through the Ollie Hinkle Heart Foundation. Um, so it truly is a labor of love and there are blurred lines between work and personal life in both businesses, but it just doesn't really feel like work. It, it feels like a just part of our lives and, and um, all we know and all we really want to know. So one more quick addendum to that. Um, when you lost Ollie, obviously devastated. And when you started the foundation, I mean, it was everything. It was so powerful. It was the distraction of the sorrow and making a difference. And now we're, we're well past uh, the passing. What keeps you going with the foundation with all those other things on your plate? Um, gosh, I, I think that when I'm able to work with the foundation, it's a way for me, me to still feel close to Ollie. Um, it feels like he's still part of our lives in this very big way. And at some point along the way, um, several years ago, the foundation just reached a point where it wasn't just about our loss and Ollie anymore. These programs that families have become dependent upon um, with financial support and mental health support. And it, it became just bigger than us um, and got to the point where if we went away, there would be a very big gap in our absence. Um, so that really just keeps us going. Um, it's, We've served over 8,000 families since our inception in 2013, and um, it just continues to fill us up and keep going and, I guess, make some sort of, you know, building this legacy for him that he didn't have the chance to build for himself. So true. I mean, let's talk about some of the things that the Ollie Hinkle Heart Foundation does for heart families while they're walking through this journey? Yes, um, I would love to. We have, um, as you can imagine, um, when families are in this situation, sometimes they, um, well, you can't plan for it, so you may not have prepared financially. And sometimes one of the parents is forced to take some time off of work so they can be at their child's bedside. And the bills can really pile up. And, um, a family who goes into it with, you know, no debt may find themselves with a lot of it once they've gone, um, once they come out of the hospital. So trying to create uh, ways to meet their needs um, financially. Um, we also send care packages to these families just to let them know they're not alone um, and to wrap them in love. And we have events for them throughout the year so that they can get together with other families and kiddos who really get it. Um, and then our flagship program is called Ollie's Branch. So through that, we're um, an access point to mental health support for families. Because also, as you can imagine, this takes a toll on the mental health of these children and their, their parents and their siblings. So through Ollie's Branch, the families can access mental health support and um, try to find ways to provide them tools to cope with this diagnosis because it, it's a lifelong illness. Um, many of these children are seen by a cardiologist for the rest of their lives. And so we're trying to find ways to help them cope and um, give them strength through um, times when sometimes it feels like they're drowning. Right. And, and you, you know, because you walked this walk and here you are giving back during uh, 
February, American Heart Month, we all want to give back. And if people want to make a donation or be a part of it in some way, where can they go to find out more about the Ollie Hinkle Heart Foundation? Yes, we would love for others to get involved in this community that we've created. Um, and they can go to our website, www.theof.org. That's T-H-E-O-H-H-F.org. Um, we have information on our website about all of our programs, about upcoming events, um, ways to get involved. We have a lot of opportunity for volunteers. Um, so I encourage people to, to check us out. Well, Jen and Mark Hinkle, we love you guys. We think you're fantastic and your whole community that you've built over there in Webster Groves with Olive and Oak and now the Allie Hinkle Heart Foundation is remarkable. Keep doing the great work and thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. That's so sweet. Thank you, guys. Now back to Girl Talk with Julie and Nicole on KTRS. Hi, Hal. How are you? Hey, Julie. Doing well. How are you doing? I am fantastic. Okay, I've seen you on TV multiple times. I have read about the book. I have since ordered the book since we decided to have this conversation. I'm going to send it to all of my sons because I love what you have to say. The book is called The Miracle Morning. It is an international bestseller, and we all kind of want a piece of this. Hal Elrod, who's the author, joins us now. Tell us about The Miracle Morning. How do we get started? Julie, I love that introduction. Thank you so much. Um, the uh, So The Miracle Morning was for me, it was born out of a time of desperation in 2008 when the economy crashed. I needed a solution, and I started this morning practice, and I kind of combined the six most timeless, proven personal development practices into one little, you know, 30-minute or 60-minute ritual, depending on the day. It was flexible, and within two months, I more than doubled my income, and it felt like a miracle, and that's what I told my wife, and she said, it's your miracle morning. So that's kind of the story of how this all came to be. And it's based on six practices that you can do in as little as six minutes a day or really? as much as 60 minutes or anywhere in between. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, and it, it's now being practiced by millions of people around the world that most of them, about 72%, self-identify as never having been a morning person before they read the book. I have to confess, I, I grew up in stadiums around the U.S. and we went to bed after Cardinal games and we slept in and it was like, don't wake dad up. He's, you know, he was working late. And so we, my family, we are just not morning people, but I feel sure. like I get those certain days where I do have to be somewhere. Now I'm at a place in my life where I don't even have to be up to get my kids out the door because they're grown up. But yeah. I will say, can you start your miracle morning after 9am or do you have to start super early? No, yes, you absolutely can start it after 9 a.m. Um, in fact, I mean, if you're a shift worker and you wake up at, you know, 2 p.m., your Great. miracle morning can start there. The, the idea is not that you wake up super early. It's that you it's, it's how you spend the first part of your day. So it's starting your day with these practices that put you in a peak physical, mental, emotional and spiritual state. Therefore, you can be at your best for the day. So it doesn't matter what time that starts. It's just starting your day. Uh, with intention versus, you know, scrolling your phone or checking email or, or that kind of thing. I get it. And you get in that trap where you're comfy still in your bed and you start scrolling through. And yeah. and before you know it, you've wasted an hour of your day. I hate to admit that on the radio, but it does happen. Yeah. Um, totally. No, it, I get, we all get sucked in. I call it a, a Facebook coma. 
Yeah. Or, uh, you know, an, an Instagram coma. It's so true. And after the 749 days of January, where we barely <laughs> saw the sun here in the Midwest anyway, uh, part of it is actually sticking your face in the sun for just a minute to soak up some vitamin D, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that it, again, depends on where you live and the time of year. But um, but I think that getting sunlight in the first thing in the morning, I mean, that it, it sets your circadian rhythms. There's just a lot of benefits to it. Um, and so, uh, for me, I usually, uh, it's actually, I actually go out, uh, at lunchtime is when I go out and get, you know, 30 minutes of vitamin D I'll go, go for a walk and, and just, uh, or even lay out in my backyard and <clears throat> just soak up the sun. Would you mind sharing with us how your mor- morning goes? Like when the alarm clock goes off and then what happens? Yeah. So, um, the, the secret that I learned to beating the snooze button is keeping the alarm clock as far away from the bed as possible where you can obviously still hear it. So for me, that was on my bathroom counter next to where I'm going to brush my teeth. uh, And I've got a full glass of water there. So alarm goes off, you get out of bed, you walk over. And the thing is, it is infinitely easier to stay awake when you've already gotten out of bed, you're upright and you've, you've walked versus if the alarm goes off and it's on your bedside table and it's within arm's reach, you're, you're, 99% 99% likely <laughs> that you're going to hit the snooze button over so and over and yep. over and over and over again. So now you're in the bathroom, you're up, you're awake. Um, if you need to splash some water in your face, great. Um, brush your teeth. And even just, here's yeah, what please, I learned. Please, for heaven's sakes, brush your yeah, teeth. Yes, for, Do it for the rest of us. <laughs> but no, what I learned is that I call this your wake-up motivation level. So think about it. The alarm goes off in the morning. The, your wake-up motivation level, being woken up from a dead sleep, is on a scale of one to 10, 10 being you're wide awake, you're at like a, a one, maybe a 0.5, right? But now if the alarm's in the bathroom, well, now you're going to be at a, a, a two, three, or four just by having to get up out of bed. And okay, it's easier to stay awake. Brush your teeth. Every minute that you're awake, it, your wake-up motivation level rises because your body acclimates to being awake. And so after brushing your teeth, now I have a full glass of water on the bathroom counter and I'm dehydrated because think about it, we're all dehydrated because we were six, seven, eight hours without water. So you drink a full glass of water as much as you can, comfortably can. Now you're ready for your miracle morning. And then you leave the bedroom because I always say that if you, if your bed is within view, that's like a smoker trying to quit smoking and keeping a pack of cigarettes at arm's length, right? You you got to get out of the bedroom. Uh, And then for me, it's in my living room. I have my bed, I have a journal, I've got um, a book, so on and so forth. And the six practices of the miracle morning are the acronym SAVERS. Silence, A for affirmations, V for visualization, E for exercise, R for reading, and the final S is for scribing, which is a fancy word for writing or journaling. And again, those are six of the most timeless, proven personal development practices that the world's most successful people have done for centuries. It's just that now they're being combined where you can do all six of them in, again, six minutes, 30 minutes, 60 minutes, whatever works for you. It's an international bestseller. It's called The Miracle Morning. There's an updated and expanded edition of it. Hal Elrod is our guest. He wrote the book. I love the premise of this because then, you know, you just get to at the late morning and you are already ahead of the game and you just feel really good. And it probably helps your attitude in general of going forward with your day. Well, it does. I think that was a big, you know, for me, I was not a morning person in 2008. 
And as I started going, okay, my life is not where I want it to be. And if you're listening to this and your life is not where you want it to be, whether it's your financial picture or your relationships or your career or your health or whatever, um, I went, I've got to change something about how I live my life, how I show up, what I do every day to change my life. And I started studying successful people and I go, wow, so many people throughout history have sworn by having a focused, productive morning routine. But I'm not a morning person though. All right. And then I realized I'm going to give it a shot. I'll give it a shot. And what happened was the very first morning that I woke up and I did, it wasn't called the miracle morning. It was just these six practices that I found on Google. And at the end of that hour, and I had done it poorly, like meditation was, was frustrating. The affirmations I found online were really cheesy and, you know, but even after an hour of this, you know, mediocre version of my morning routine, I felt incredible to your point. My attitude was, man, I've been depressed for six months. My finances have been spiraling downward. That very first morning I went, wow, if I start every day with this much clarity and energy and I'm learning something new every day that I can apply to my life, if I start every day like this, it's only a matter of time before I become the person that I need to be to turn my life around. And like I said earlier, it happened. So, I didn't think it would happen in two months. I thought maybe a year, but it happened so fast that it felt like a miracle. And now the last thing I'll say on this is that it, it, I have, I mean, millions of people around the world have done the miracle morning. You know, Amazon alone has 30,000 plus reviews. And what you find is that it's universal for people, whatever the age of a person, whatever the socioeconomic factor, whatever background, everyone has a morning and how you start your morning sets up the rest of your day. And if you start the day, you know, if you win the morning, in other words, you, you set yourself up to win the day. You can apply this to whatever area of your life you want to improve. You apply your miracle morning to your health, to your wealth, to your relationships, and you accelerate how quickly you improve in that area. Mentally, emotionally, spiritually. What about on the weekends? I guess we keep it going, right? That's a great question. So there is a Miracle Morning Facebook group uh, with 350,000 people in it called the Miracle Morning Community. And that's one of the most popular questions that gets asked in there is, hey, uh, I'm doing the Miracle Morning. Uh, I, 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 you know, I'm getting the hang of it. I, 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 what do I, you know, do you guys do it on the weekends? And the answer unanimous, almost unanimously every time is, I started out doing it Monday through Friday because we've been conditioned to believe that you take the weekends off. And then almost every time people will, you know, and there'll be hundreds of comments and people will say the same thing, which is I started it five days a week, but I felt so good on the days I did my miracle morning. And then I felt kind of blase on the, on the weekends when I didn't do it. And so I started doing it on Saturdays. So Monday through Saturday and wow, I had a great Saturday. And then, so most people go from five days a week to six days a week. And then many go, why not even do it on Sunday? Even if it's a shortened version Uh, So maybe they're starting their miracle morning a couple hours later on the weekends, but they're still doing the practices. I love it. I'm excited to get this book by the case and hand it out to people. (laughs) The Miracle Morning, you got to get it. Hal Elrod has been our guest today, and you can get the book, I would imagine, anywhere books are sold. Anywhere books are sold, yeah. And there's a documentary. There's a movie um, MiracleMorningMovie.com or uh, Amazon Prime. You can watch it there. It's free on MiracleMorningMovie.com, but uh, Amazon Prime, you can rent it there. But there's a 90-minute documentary that shows the story, some of the most inspiring stories of people who have uh, applied the Miracle Morning to their life. One guy lost 80 pounds after being obese his entire life. 
Um, one man, uh, he lost his, uh, uh, his son died, and he went into a, a year-long depression. And his very first miracle morning, his name's Keith Minnick, he said he decided he wasn't going to be depressed anymore, and now he's been doing the miracle morning for 10 years. Uh, there was a gal who lost her eyesight, and her husband left her as a single mother in Kenya, and she discovered the miracle morning from a Google search and turned her life around and became a best-selling author and a motivational speaker. So there's these stories of people who have used this book and used this practice to transform their lives, and it really takes you beyond the books. You can see how it's working in people's lives. So yeah, the book's available anywhere. Uh, the movie's on MiracleMorning.com. I'll be watching the MiracleMorning.com for sure, and I and I know that it's got to make you feel good that you were chosen to take this path and spread the word. It it uh, it does. It's it's very humbling and gratifying and sometimes surreal at times and sometimes overwhelming. So it's, it's, it's all of the above. Are we going to come up with the miracle day or the miracle evening or are there books to follow? Yeah. So that, well, and there's actually 12 books in the series. So there's the miracle morning for parents and families, the miracle morning for college students, the miracle morning for real estate agents. So there are books in the series. And then there is a, so you mentioned this new edition. I, I added 70 pages. The new edition just came out last month. I added 70 pages of new content. Two of those chapters are the miracle evening and the miracle life. So the miracle evening is your strategy for blissful bedtime and better sleep. And the miracle life is your path to inner freedom. It's basically my, my paradigm on how I'm able to enjoy life even in the midst of the most difficult, stressful times and teaching people how to do that. So it's not like you have to transform your life and wait until it's transformed to actually be at peace and enjoy life. The miracle life is, hey, how can I actually just shift the way I'm viewing the things in my life while I'm improving it, but, but not waiting until it gets improved to enjoy this one life that we've been blessed to live? I think that we should all make that decision today and then, you know, make the changes we want to make as we go along. Fantastic info. Hal Elrod, thank you so much for being on the show today. We love miracles around here. Keep doing what you're doing. It is such a pleasure, and thank you so much for having me, Julie. I appreciate you. All right, take care. The book is called The Miracle Morning. Check it out where books are sold. 